0: And joining me is the much-anticipated interview with the CEO, the Don, the Emperor of Team Trinity, Ernie Prevetti. What's up, Ernie?
1: What up, Gotti? Save D12, please.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The Lakers need him. (laughs) You want to send him back to Orlando. No,
1: no, we don't want him. We'll... We're, we're okay with our 20-game win season. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Kirby? I don't hear him. I don't hear Kirby.
0: Oh, Kurt. Unfortunately, Kirby could not be with us because he is out on a date with a lady.
1: Can you believe that? I mean, no. all, the, all the time you guys wanted me on the show, and I finally come on the show, and Kirby is me.
0: Well, it's his yeah. first date in years. And, you know, I can't blame him there, but, you know, I tried to get him on. I I did my part. I tried to get him on, but he ref- he said, dude, I got to go on his date. He nope. goes, can't Ernie do it at 530? And I said, no, nah, Ernie can only be on about 730.
1: I had to go to the bank at 530. It didn't get done till 7. It takes a long time to deposit all that. Well, since, <laughs> since Ernie's not
0: here, you know, it's liners. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, yeah. The heck with the Niners.
1: And between you and Kirby, you were always my favorite anyway. The, the only the only, good hand was Brother Ryan hand. You know I love you, Kirby. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Kirby would fight back with saying, hey, I sold a ton of those Kirby hand oval editions and made you a lot of money.
1: What's the Kirby hand oval edition? <laughs> no, no, Kirby was a great oval racer for sure. Yeah, now, those those are fun days. I mean, you know, even even today, I think about those days when we all worked together. It was great.
0: Yeah, we had a blast. We were talking yeah. about it earlier in the show about how much fun it was to uh, be in that apartment with seven guys and and one bathroom. <laughs> Did you have a
1: hopper?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I could see I could see Big Jim on the toilet saying, "Shut up, I'm on the hopper." <laughs> <laughs> That <laughs> yeah, was fun. It was a fun time, I tell
0: ya. Oh, it was great. And I, I was never on work on time because uh, I was like the last one to get out, you know, to use the bathroom. You? Because I I was.
1: You work on site? <laughs> I, I never knew you worked on site. I thought you worked out off site. I didn't. <laughs> Just kidding.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the times I actually showed up, I was late. So.
1: Okay. Well, you, had, you had a
0: long drive. Yeah. <laughs> well, only on Mondays I did. Right. Right. So, But, yeah, we were talking about that earlier, what a fun time it was. And uh, uh, we ribbed you a little bit because we said, yeah, Ernie would take us out to Chili's for lunch. It was really cool. I mean, he would buy, and uh, we'd laugh it up, have a good time. But then when we got back to Trinity, man, he cracked the whip. I had a, I had a different
1: personality, man, who we were no longer friends when we walked through those arches.
0: <laughs> and, and that's the truth, listeners. That is the truth. <laughs> Good times.
1: I mean, we were on a we were on a mission there. I mean, I was a great company at that time. We had great staff, and you know, God, we were, at one point. I mean, I remember we, we used to. I used to, you know, catch up and then just work on next quarter stuff or the quarter after that. That's how many projects we were doing at once. I mean, you remember. I mean, it yeah. was be fun times.
0: Yeah, I miss those days. What yeah. Do? And, and now, and then you move Trinity to Florida on me, so now Ernie ran away from me, so he's like, man, Jersey's <laughs> too close to Gotti, so i got to move this to Florida. That way there's no chance of Gotti ever coming back.
1: <laughs> well, I got here just in time. The Magic were competitive when I got here. So I guess now it's time to leave.
0: <laughs> yeah, are you going to keep your uh, courtside seats? Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I still know you know some of the players on the team. They're your friends, like Jameer and Turk, and you know I, that that was the great thing about going to the Magic games. Not only were they doing good, but you know back then I knew most of the guys on the team. I mean, it was like you know that's why I was probably so animated at the games. I wanted those guys to win because I like them, you know. Yeah. And now it's you know there's very few veterans left, and all new guys. <laughs> But, you know, I'll keep him to see the, you know, unfortunately, I hate to say this, to see the other teams, you know, the Heat, Clippers, you know, whatever.
0: Yeah. Eh. Lakers.
1: yeah, Lakers. I mean, if Kobe's back, I'm there. I got to say, I mean, Kobe, you know, I mean, always did respect him, but I respected him a hell of a lot this year. I mean, he gave I everything. Mean, he carried that team for as long as he could walk.
0: Ernie, you're going in and out a little bit, so just so. Oh, you know. okay. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens this year. And uh, I, I remember seeing you on TV, and I'd be like to, to all my friends, hey, I know that guy. He used to be my boss right there. See him? See him? See him? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was the coolest thing to actually know somebody courtside, because I never know anybody courtside. I was like, ah, that's Ernie, right there, right
1: there. It's great, You know, it's crazy. I didn't realize that, you know, because so I guess some of the bigger games, it gets broadcast overseas. And, you know, it's amazing how many people that I haven't heard from in years you know, just said, hey, I I, uh, I saw you at the, the Laker you know, versus Magic or whatever. I mean, recently I was in New York for business, and I stayed at a hotel I normally stayed at, and one of the room service guys come up, and I hadn't seen him in five or six years, and he said, hey, I saw you on the TV the other night. I mean, it was crazy. I can't even believe the guy <laughs> recognized me. That's nuts. Yeah. That's fun
0: sitting down there. <laughs> So, so you're enjoying Florida? I mean, that seems... I, I was shocked when you moved to Florida. I was like, Wow, well, it doesn't seem like Ernie's spot, but uh, you're having a lot of fun down there.
1: Well, I mean, you know, after the, after the divorce, I, I really had to go somewhere. And, uh, you know, it just happened to be Florida. I mean, you know, there's great things about it, and there's some things I hate about it, too. But, you know, for the most part, it's been good. It's certainly, like you say, probably a big uh, transition from
0: the Jersey-New York area. I was shocked yeah it, it must be hard having to share the same state as our other co-host who's not with us tonight either is Jason Rona
1: yeah no I hardly see Rona I mean I see him every now and then they get away or something but he's a good guy I
2: mean how
0: can yeah. you
1: say anything yeah. bad about Rona he's a, he's a Jordan fan
2: <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> Nick was looking up uh, shout out to my son Nick he was uh, looking up uh, rapper salaries before his laptop. And, <laughs> and uh, somehow he got to LeBron about how much LeBron's worth. He said, you know, 110 million. So I said, why don't you look up Jordan for the hell? of that? I know he hasn't played in 20 some odd years, but just look him up. You know, really? 1.3 billion.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. He's going to
1: right nuts. Business. Yeah.
0: So talk, you know what talk about your family a little bit. A lot of uh, listeners love to hear that stuff. I mean uh, you're living down there in Florida. you got two daughters and uh, Nick. Um, your daughters are growing up fast I think uh,
2: Yeah
1: I mean I have one daughter uh, this is my little one uh, Juliana who's nine and um, Angelina is gonna be uh, 16 uh, July 12th next week and um, Nick is already 17. Wow. yeah time you know that old cliche you know time passes by. it really does I mean I
0: remember when they were
1: you know babies
0: I remember Nick coming into Trinity he was just a tiny thing yeah yeah
1: Yeah. I mean I mean Jules was only uh, what three when I moved down here yeah I guess I've been here six years now wow
0: yeah so what kind of car are you getting your 16 year old uh <laughs> I have, I have,
1: that's the topic for discussion. I don't know. you know. Next, next viewpoint view is he should he should be driving a Ferrari. which it's a reflection on me. That's not gonna happen. And <laughs> I, uh, the Gordon one, the BMW, it's also not gonna happen. Oh, yeah. Shit, I drove a Gremlin.
2: You know, you can't,
1: you- get, much, you can't get much lower than that.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now, hey, wait, wait a minute. At Trinity, there used to be a picture there that Tony Bowers had, the secretary, of you in back of a, of a car. Was that the Gremlin? You were in back of a car selling parts back, like when you were trying to start Trinity up. And, uh,
1: I mean, when I, I was that, in when I was in Brooklyn. I mean, after mm-hmm. you know, my dad died early on when, when I was eleven, and mm-hmm. we, it was just me and my mom. And, you know, it just seemed like, I would say, it's probably longer than that, but it seemed like in two months we were on welfare. I mean, we had nothing. And uh, eventually my grandfather had to come to live with us after my grandmother died, and we lived off of his Social Security check. So he had, a, he had an old Grand Torino, which was his pride and joy. I mean, he'd go out and wax the thing every day, but he never mm-hmm. drove us. I mean, he was, you know, he was older, he was in his probably late 70s. And I wound up talking him into letting me use that car. And okay. I mean, I mean, that was a legendary car. because I remember I'd show up to slot car tracks, turn it off, and the valves would smoke. I mean, you know, <laughs> people would come out and take pictures of it. I and mean, it was the most embarrassing thing ever. <laughs> so that was, that was <laughs> probably the car in Tony the, the picture.
0: Okay. All right. The,
1: the Gremlin was my first new car. <laughs>
0: Uh, wow! Stepped up there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I couldn't see the whole car, so I couldn't tell what it was. I just remember, uh, I was like, "Wow, that's Ernie!" Like sitting in the trunk selling Trinity parts. You sure that wasn't? You sure
1: that wasn't P
0: No, 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 that was you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. But I'm I'm just amazed. Like I was always amazed. Like uh, how Trinity started. Like I remember reading stories about it started like in a. Like, basically, like, in a closet.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a long story. I can go through it. I didn't think anybody would care about it. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, there's a lot of listeners that don't know about that story. I mean, a lot of us hardcore guys do, but uh, a lot of our fans probably don't know how I that mean, started. You
1: know, basically, mm-hmm. I was, you know, I, I used to race lockers when I was a kid. And mm-hmm. it's one of these things, probably like video games today. You know, I went to a, a place called Polk's Hobby in New York City. I mean, that was back in the day when you could travel the subways, and it was a different world, I and mean, it was much safer. But, I mean, as a kid, i I, I guess I'd go to grammar school and, and hop on a train and go into the city. And I, I saw this fly car track in Pokes on Fifth Avenue and just fell in love with racing. And I just, you know, I raced probably every day I, every day I could, and on weekends and things like that, I was just addicted to it. Um, and, you know, I did fairly well at it. I was never really a great builder like Tony or Bob Emmett or people like that, but I had, you know, really good reflexes and I could drive the course pretty good. So, you know, basically I raced with Tony and Bob Emmett and, you know, people like that back in the day. And then when it came time to go to college, I gave it up. I mean, at that time, I don't know if you know, you probably, you probably know, but, I mean, I was being a Roman Catholic priest. And when I got into college, that was the first step to going into a major seminary. So at that point in my life, I thought I wanted to become a priest. I, I figured it was over for slot court racing, so I just stopped. And, uh, you know, graduated college and then obviously had a, a massive career change and decided to leave uh, the seminary. And, uh, you know, got out, came back and uh, Tony was still racing. He was, you know, building chassis, you know, just in his mom's house and I didn't have any money and he said, you know, why don't you just start racing again and maybe you can build some cars and, you know, and we started racing and that's what I was doing. I remember giving my mom the, uh, one year proverbial, uh, take off a year speech, like mom, let me take off one year. And if uh, things don't work out, you know, I'll go, I was going to go to law school. That was my plan B from the seminary. And, you know, I took that year off and we, we started racing. I mean, those were meager times. I mean, I remember we, Tony and I would drive to a race in Cincinnati or, or someplace, Columbus or wherever it was. And if we didn't win the race because it was cash prizes, we'd have to sell stuff out of our boxes to get home. I mean, you know, we didn't have any money. I mean, when I think about some of the things we did back in the day, I don't know if it could ever be done today. I mean, it it's just a different environment. But, you know, I was traveling all over the country, racing and just building cars. And, you know, loved it. I mean, I didn't have really any money to haul. And then... Um, you know, Tony was still on the chassis, and he said, I think he said to me one day, you know, you should get into the motors. And at that point, I didn't know anything about an electric motor. But, it, again, it was that whole, I don't know if you want to call it entrepreneurial spirit, because at that time, and I didn't think I knew what that was. But, you know, I didn't think about, well, if I, if I make a motor, you know, I'm going to make $20 on it. I just wanted to make something and be successful. So I talked my mom into taking all the furniture out of the house. I mean, we lived in a, a three-story walk up in Brooklyn. It was on the third floor. There was, you know, living room, a kitchen, and the bedroom, which my grandfather lived in. Of course, we lived off of his Social Security, so he got the bed. Uh, you know, I, took, I stripped all the furniture out of the living room and built wooden workbenches all around the outside of the walls. And my mom and I slept on these these cheap, you know, chase lounges that you'd see at, you know, Walmart or something. You know, the really Mm -hmm. plastic crappy ones. That's what we loved because there was no room. And that's where it's I just, you know, worked like that. I learned by the seat of my pants. And at that time, you know, we still swat car racing. And we had, I think it was Bob Emmett who had just saw the first radio control car. And I think Bob Rule had, or a Bowling, or maybe it was Don McKay of Joe Mack. And at that time, most of the stock car tracks were closing because the rents were so large. And the industry started to go down a little. Nobody could pay the rents. And I looked at this car and you know, before it was a crude RC car, but you could race it anywhere. And um, I remember, you know, talking to Tony, and he was saying, well, "How are we going to get into this?" At that time, I was dynamically balancing slot car armatures. So you know, people ran the motors, took the motors apart, put them in an envelope, sent them to me, and I'd refurbish them. That was probably the majority of my business. And, you know, I had this dynamic balancer, and I don't know, I think what Tony said, well, we should take the balancer back and uh, get it refurbished where your control arms and that's when we could start. And I remember we drove down to Virginia. You know, Tony looked at the map and said, I said, how far is this place? This is like, no, oh, it's like four hours from Brooklyn. I mean, obviously that was wrong. We were driving like nine hours into it and it was still probably another five hours. I think it was in Lynchburg. You know, make a long story short on that, we, we wound up getting in a car crash there. My my Torino was totaled. You know, oh. Bob Evans had to come and get us, but we had a uh, we, we changed the balancer over so we could, you know, balance an RC arm. Again, we didn't know, you know, were, uh no uh checking on whether this was market at all at that time the RPMs was so small on a rc motor there was no reason for rebalancing so i mean the whole thing was a complete waste of time but that's what got me into radio control and i remember the first big race we went to we went to this race at ratty's which was a famous track in uh was it uh in boston i think it was I think it was in seventy nine, eighty, I don't I don't remember exactly what it was, but Bob and Tony were racing RC cars and we drove down there and I tell this story a lot. It probably wasn't like this, but this is what it seemed to be. Me. I mean I was in mm-hmm. some dumpy little kid from Brooklyn, I had a hold to my T shirt and driving <laughs> my father's grand Torino that that you know, basically smoked while I turned it off and I, and I <laughs> we fall into this place and the associated pits looked like they were from here to like you know Virginia. I mean it just looked like you know it looked like Penske, but like a hundred times it looked like the whole track was racing for Associated. I mean they had a guy whose name was Mike Rowland and he just drove a, a panel truck of parts to each race. I mean you know they were you know just a huge company I, you know as they are today, but it was incredible for me to see that and I remember talking looking at Tony, I think I said, Are you crazy? We're never going to compete with these guys. <laughs> and we were lucky enough to have Joel Johnson. He was the only kid at that time that wasn't racing for Associators. I think his dad had a, a problem with them or they didn't like each other or whatever. So Joel was the one guy in the world who wasn't racing for him. And I wound up, you know, getting Joel to, you know, to run Trinity. I mean, I think he was at that time. 12 or 11 or 12. And, you know, we got some notoriety at that race. I mean, it was, that was the day when you raced outdoor all day and then you'd race indoor at night. So it was like 24 hours of racing. And we went to that race. I mean, I had like probably six total motors. You know, I'd run outdoor all day and then we'd go in the indoor and I'd just crank up the timing on the same motors and we'd run those. You know, we had no battery packs. I mean, it was so bad. When Joel went out to race, we were running for MRP. And MRP had one set of pinions. And at that time, Gary Kies was like the head honcho. You know, we had, a, we had to wait for Gary to race. If I wanted to change ratios, Gary would come in. I'd have to get a rag and a wrench and take his pinion off so I wouldn't burn myself and then put it on Joel's car. I mean, that's how me, was in wow. the beginning. And, but we got a little notoriety at that point. It was all, you know, we, I mean, obviously, I mean, he was the biggest. And then, uh, you know, big Jim at checkpoint was, was trying to get a foothold into it. But, you know, I don't, I don't know if Joel won won any of those events, but he got a couple of seconds and uh, a third. And for us, it was a huge deal. And, you know, that was the first start we got. And then after that, it kind of propelled a little because we were, approaching radio control like we did slot cars. And I think at that point, you know, maybe RC companies were just, you know, the motors didn't seem to mean much. They were working mostly on the cars, the setups, the tires, things like that. And the motor was an after boss. And we took the opinion that we were going to try to make the motors faster. And, you know, we did a lot of things that other people weren't doing back in the day. We were, were pulling the magnets out. We were matching them who were grinding them, who were using modular end bells, So the motors looked, you know, different. And, you know, at that point, at that time, I was uh, getting motors from Mike. You know, at that time of the year, people would say to me, they're in the motor business, and, oh, it's so hard now. It's so hard to compete. I mean, you should have been back then. I mean, at that time, they had a, a legitimate cartel, which today would be illegal, I mean, I forgot who was in it. It was Mike and maybe Bob Rule and Don McKay and Joe Mack. And those were the only guys that could buy these motors. If you wanted to buy a motor, you had to ask for their permission. None of those guys would sell me except Mike Greedy. Mike Greedy basically helped me get into the motor business. I mean, he, was, he said, if this guy wants to get in, let him in. And, you know, I'd buy 100 or 200 motors for Mike. That was it. That's all I could afford. Yeah. So that was the start. I mean, how it took off was, you know, again, it was Joel, and uh, I forgot what year it was, but you know, Joel had a really good year, and most people had favored him that he might win the world championships. And I decided at that point we were going to go to Japan for the Japanese nationals, and told Joel, you know, he had to skip the worlds, which I think he really had a great shot of winning, and. You know, he didn't really complain that much. I mean, he was, uh, he was, not only was a great driver, he was a great kid, as you know, and he was all about the team. I mean, he'd do anything for me and vice versa. And we went to Tokyo. And, you know, I think I told you this story. I mean, I, we had no money at all. I took everything I had in savings and bought two tickets to Tokyo. And my dream was I was going to deal with Kyosho. I heard Kyosho was making another motor. So it was, it was a Yokomoto Reedy, and everybody was buying the motors there, and I was going to get my own motor. So, you know, this is how naive I was. At that time, we didn't have faxes, I had a telex. And I telex over to Kyosho and basically tell them that I'm arriving for this Japan Nationals, and I want to meet with them. I don't get an answer back right away, but I, I think it was the day before or two days before we left, I get a telex back from Kyosho basically saying, thanks, but no thanks. We have no interest in meeting you. We don't know who you are. And, uh, there's no meeting. So, I mean, I'm sitting there saying, wow. Wow.
2: (laughs) Oh my God.
1: We get on the plane anyway, because we had no, you know, nothing else. I mean, the tickets were non refundable, nothing I could do. And we get there and like most Japanese races at that time, they built, uh, a, a racetrack in a mall. Beautiful. But I mean, you know, there was no practice. So okay. when we got there it was carpet, six cell, which we didn't run much of, and three qualifiers and there's no practice. And uh we missed the first qualifier because we couldn't uh we couldn't figure out when Joel was up. They they were calling the race in Japanese. And the huh. second qualifier Joel got hit right on the line, the radio was you know, just going bonkers, so we were out of that. I mean, I remember the KO guys coming over, who well, I didn't know at that point, but they were really gracious, they came over, they checked the radio, Joel was running the KO, gave him a different module and a different crystal. that time, we were using crystals and stuff. And uh, yeah. I remember there was the third qualifier, Joel was just about ready to start. And I did something I probably should have never done And I think he was 12. And I walked up to him and I said, Joel, good luck. My entire future and everything I'm ever going to be as a man is going to be based on the next eight minutes, which is you know, <laughs> wow. ridiculous amount of pressure to put on a kid. And they said, three, two, one, go. And he just annihilated them. I mean, he had no trouble with the... Uh, you know, with the radio, and obviously had no trouble getting around the track. I think he won the, the race by, three laps. At that, at that time, Masami was there and a couple other guys. They were younger guys, obviously. But, I mean, we were mobbed after the race. And, um, you know, the you know, Japanese at that time very inquisitive. They, they couldn't understand how we could take a Japanese motor, which was a Yokomo, and run it, make it much better than what they were running. And I got a tap on the shoulder from a young Japanese kid who said, you know, basically, Kyosho has made a mistake. We'd like to meet you tomorrow. And later on, I found out that kid was Aki Suzuki, the, the, the son of the owner, Hisashi Suzuki of Kyosho. He took it upon himself to, you know, extend the invite. And we went over the next morning, and again, like like the vision with the associate, I walked into Asashi's office, and to me, it probably looked like you know fifteen thousand square feet. It probably wasn't, but it was yeah. it was probably bigger than my was probably bigger than Trinity's office. And I'm um, you know pleading out my case at that point in his office. I'm starting to realize, okay, great. You've gotten in, you know, the owner of Kyosho's office, Joel's, won the Japanese Nationals. There's one problem. You don't have any money to buy the motors. So at that Mm. point, I had to switch directions and basically,
2: uh, you know,
1: ask him for credit. That if he would give me motors on credit, you know, we would share the technology with him, and I'd do everything I could to help him, and yada, yada, yada. You know, uh, I was talking through a translator, a guy named Mori Matsumoto at that time, who was talking to Asashi, who really never spoke any English at that meeting. And, you know, we bowed and left, and I went home, and I got no response, and I figured that was this. And about two weeks after that, I got a, a telex from Mori Matsumoto, the translator, Saying that Mr. Suzuki is going to trust you and 500 motors are on the way. And I mean, I was, you're just completely blown away. And, um, you know, we got the motors, started working on them. Joel was really successful with them. And I think it was probably a year, a year and a half after that, we were selling 30,000 motors a month. We were, we were, Kiyosho's largest motor company and it was it was a runaway train I mean we were on the we were on uh, I think it was page three of the Wall Street Journal you know private company goes crazy you know I forgot what the headline was but I mean it was it was just insane and you know I was just in the right place at the right time and uh, you know had a lot of help you know from Reedy from Joel you know from Kiyosho I mean it was all a set of my mom it was just all a set of things because I was in the right place and I had good people helping me. I mean, Tony, and it just all worked. I mean, I remember the hardest thing I ever had to do was going back to Kyosho and telling them that we were, my dream was to get, you know, in Japanese-type business at that time, I don't know if it's still like that, we don't it in Japan anymore, but there was always a middleman. You never mm-hmm. could get to the end manufacturer. So whoever was actually making the motor, it wasn't Kyosho. Kyosho was the middleman, and they had given me my start. So it's difficult to to say to him, you know, we're at a point now where we need to go to the next point, and I can't buy the motors from you. I need to go to the end user, and I think that was the thing. He was gracious and said he understood. And we went directly to the company, and at that time we had a huge edge in price. We we had a vision to put the motors in packaging, which we designed here. So when we we got the motors that came in, our motors are completely finished. We did the design work here, the engineering on the motor here, the packaging here. So when we got 30,000 motors, and they were ready to ship, whereas other other companies at that time if they got an order for 500 motors, even if the motors were done, it would take them probably a week just to pack seven polybags. You know, so mm. that kind of inventory and turnover, the distributors loved us because we, we could yeah we could deliver in a market that was, you know, obviously, you know, could take anything we could give them. And and that was probably the biggest step. I mean, Joel winning that race and Kiyosha right. giving us a start I and then mean, Kiyosha... Being understanding to get it to the end user. Out of the end, you know, whoever the maker was. And when we did that, we had such a huge price advantage. And you not know, only price. When you can talk to the actual vendor who's making the motor, you can make changes. You can get different technology you can use that you, you don't have privy to if you go into a middleman. So, I mean, that, that's the story in a nutshell. Really.
0: What year are we at right now? When you started going right to the vendor?
1: We're probably somewhere in the 80s, 80s, early 90s. When was your first building? Like, uh, yeah, like the first, first building, I mean, it's another funny story where people are listening. is so probably going to say, this guy's an idiot. <laughs> but, but I mean, I was living in Brooklyn, and I was working in a small back room at B.I.R. A. A hobby Shop in New Jersey. And, oh, it was me, Tony, and another guy called Kenny Piccola, And uh, we would work all day and build the motors there. And, you know, probably quit at about 9 or 10 o'clock at night. At that point, I would drive back to Brooklyn, give the motors to my mom. My mom would stay up all night and package everything, pack the boxes. I'd get up the next morning and go right to the depot and ship them. So it was like a 24 hour deal. I mean, my mom, you know, my, my mom worked at home. We had a, a small thing set up there where she'd and then we were, we were at BIR and then what happened, which forced me to move out of there, was, you know, the first year I started to make some money, this was before we were selling 30,000 a month. Uh, I didn't pay any taxes. And when I went to talk to an accountant to get some advice, he said, Well the first thing you gotta do is get in one state because I was living in I was living in Brooklyn and I was working in Jersey so I had two taxes. Yeah. And you know, as I made most decisions that that, that time, which was ridiculous, I drove over the Godholes Bridge and the first town was Linden. Linden, New Jersey. So I said, Well, I'll just find some place here <laughs> and, and I was in the first building. We you know, I think it was thirteen hundred square feet and I walked in, it was a, like a 25 unit of
2: 1,300,
1: 1,500 square feet, and we had one unit, and I walked in with Tony, and I said, I remember I remember like yesterday, and I looked at him, and I said, how the hell are we going to fill this up? I mean, you know, we didn't have enough stuff for that, and I'd say probably we are there for a year or two, and we had, I think, 23 of the 25 units. They so just kept balling holes in the wall. And uh, you know, we stayed there for a long time and um then from there we went to a a building which uh, uh, I think it was I think that was Meridian after that, wasn't it? I can't even remember.
0: I remember mm, I bought yes. I
1: remember I bought that building in Edison. And um we went from there, went from renting to to buying this building in Edison and that's that's where we had our Greatest success, I think.
0: Yeah, that factory was huge.
1: Yeah. We had a ton of employees. I mean, it was, you know, we had several people in accounting. I mean, it was, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. At at that time, I could walk into a bank and get any amount of money I wanted. Now the same guy (laughs) is saying, Who are you?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, and and plus, uh, Edison, New Jersey were there for quite a while, and then you move to, to Florida in what?
1: No, no, oh. I, went, I think from there went to Piscataway. or, 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 or no, maybe with Biscataway was before Edison, yeah. Piscataway was, was the next step. It was renting again, but it was a bigger place, much bigger. Right. Okay. And then okay. from Piscataway I bought the building in Edison. And, you know, the problem with Edison, you know, which I'm sure most people know, and maybe some people don't, you know, I went through a very bad divorce. Uh, It removed me from the business quite a bit. At the same time, I I went through, you know, open-heart surgery, which, you know, removed me from the business, and, you know, things just started to go south, and... At that point, I had to make the decision that I want to take care of my kids and raise them or that I just want to take care of the business, and I had to take care of the kids. And, you know, that kind of, you know, that empire or whatever you we really had back then, you know, it just couldn't sustain everything that was happening. And um, I moved to, when I moved to Florida six years ago, Honestly, I didn't think I didn't even think I was gonna reopen Trinity. I had really had it. I mean I was in the I was in pretty, probably the worst situation in my mind in my life. I I was just gonna retire. I was just gonna just forget about Trinity altogether and just raise the kids and try to enjoy life and you know, that lasted for about a year and I got bored. And uh, you know, we started off down here. And, you know, here we are now. I mean, you know it's it's you know, Infinity now is on a smaller scale, but I can see the the same seeds that I saw back then. I mean, I'm going to work every day again and this has been going on for about two years and we have goals setting, and yeah. And uh things are moving great. I mean I mean, you know, so I'm pretty happy right now.
0: Yeah, and uh you guys seem to be um coming back in the mix of things. I mean, there's some chatter back there that Trinity's coming back. and. Uh, um, We're back, baby. And, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're starting to make that climb back up. And, uh, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I know there's a lot of people wondering, like, well, what happened to Trinity? Well, I mean, right there it is. I mean, I, I know that, you know, the whole divorce thing really took a toll on you. And then, like you said, probably your failing health came from that divorce pressure, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, and you know, I removed you from the industry and you, you had to make a choice and uh um now you're regrouping and uh doing some things and making a comeback.
1: Yeah. I mean a divorce took three years. And when yeah. you when you, when you're in court for three years and when you're trying to raise three kids and at that time my, my youngest daughter was six months old and yeah. at the same time I had staples in my chest. So you know, I, I like to tell people another story where, where people talk about money or whatever. I say, you know, when you're on an aluminum slab nude, and they, they and they you know run you into the operating room, and all you see are those lights. You really don't care how many zeros you have in your checking account anymore. All you care about is getting off that table. <laughs> And you know most people say you get a revelation when something that bad happens. well, I think I did i mean it, i I got a new lease on life, and I just appreciated my life a lot more and the things that are really important, like your family or your kids or whatever you know I mean you know i mean i i when I, in the, in the old days, I mean I get up at five, you know, drive an hour to work because I lived in the Saddle River, work till about eight eight thirty drive home and get home at nine thirty at night and run straight into my office at home and then start the whole thing all over again. And yeah. you know, I was working six, seven days a week. Eventually it's just something goes.
0: Ernie would email me like three in the morning and stuff with, you know. <laughs> and I'd be like and would be like, how come you're not responding to me? I'm like, I'm not up at three <laughs> in the morning, dude.
1: <laughs> that's that's the that's the joke in the industry now. Don't give Ernie your email address <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said that to me today. I forgot who it was. And they were at the place, and I said, give me your email address. And the guy kind of looked at me funny, and he said, everybody says not to give you an email address. I don't want to get emails. So I get four in the morning. It was so bad back then. I mean, I was so motivated or crazy. I, mean, I was sleeping with my BlackBerry. I mean, <laughs> it's
0: nuts. <laughs> you don't do that now? No. No, nah.
1: Yeah, I still work hard, but, you know, trying to get a balanced life and especially for them, you know, I'm not honestly, I work four days so a week I'm, I'm losing
0: to- a little bit there, Ernie. Sorry. Yeah, I'm saying I'm, I'm
1: working four days a week
0: now, uh, you know, and sometimes I'll go in
1: myself on the weekends, but, you know, I'm trying to do more stuff with them.
0: Now, how, how, how close is Trinity to you now?
1: Now, we're really close. I mean, we were far before, but now I'm within
0: 10 minutes. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, so it's easy, yeah.
0: And, and you still, uh, Tony P moved down with you, and he's still there, I see, on Facebook. I see his pictures and stuff. Looking good? Yeah. He's
1: doing well. You know, he's married. You know, so. Uh, he Poor
2: that.
0: lady.
1: Right? <laughs> <laughs> he's still as grumpy as
0: ever. What's what's the uh, typical day like for you then? Like now, uh, that's a uh, one of the questions that fans like to hear. They like to hear like when you wake up and stuff. So, you're, so obviously you're not you're not up all night anymore like you used to be. Now you get up nah. at uh, what? I think you're up by uh, five thirty according to your Facebook statuses and stuff.
1: <laughs> the typical day for me is like I get up at five a.m. I get to the kids are in, if the kids are in school, I'll you know grab a quick cup of coffee, check some email. And then I've got to get them up at 5.30. You know, breakfast. My, my two older ones who go to uh, high school have to be dropped off by like 6.20. I drop them off, come back. And then Jules, who's in, you know, uh, regular grammar school, has to be dropped off by 7.15. At 7.15, I drop her off, and I'm off to work. And uh, Jules goes to aftercare. Uh, Nick and Ina can come home themselves by bus. And I'll pick up Jules at about you know five five thirty. You know, get home, make dinner, work on homework, whatever. And start the second shift.
0: And uh, that's the way it is. Yeah, you make a hell of a dinner too. I see some of those photos.
1: Yeah, you know, I, mean, I never could cook at all. But I mean, with the divorce and everything, I mean I was your typical. You know, male husband, I couldn't, I couldn't boil water, but I right. get into it now, it calms me down, and uh, you know, I really like it. I mean, last year I, had qualified to go on that uh, Master Chef, I didn't go because it was a month away from home in California, but I had, I had, I had made the, I had made the cut to go on the show. So I guess my stuff's okay. Hmm.
0: <laughs> I still have yet to make it down there for. Uh one of those famous dinners, but I will someday, and I will be staying at the house, hanging out for about a week.
1: You gotta come down when D12 and the Lakers come into town.
0: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) man. I sure hope he's not on the team. But anyway. Are you promising me a courtside seat on the air? Huh? Are you gonna promise me courtside?
1: Sure. You got it. All right. If, if cool. Rona can't, if Rona can go,
0: yeah. Oh,
1: <laughs>
0: damn it, that Rona! And kick him off the show.
1: Rona, I already promised Rona courtside seats when Jordan makes his comeback.
0: Oh, man. <laughs> Surprised we haven't heard about that yet. His comeback. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think recently he said he could play in the NBA still. He thinks he feels that he can still do it. I, th- I thought I saw that on ESPN or something.
1: I mean, you can't do it. You can't do it like you used to. I, I, I'm i sure in this, this pathetic league, you could probably score 20 a night. I mean, you know, for me, just to get on the NBA a little, you know, the yeah. self proclaimed king, you know, LeBron, how great he is. I mean, there's nobody playing. The next best guy is Durant, you know, no. at a no touch rule. Let's see him play in the in the 80s against the Pistons where, where, where they bring you to the floor and, and you're playing against guys like Bird, Magic, Barkley, you know, Korn Malone, all Hall of Famers. It's crazy when people compare them. I don't, you know, I think the yeah. closest, closest thing to Jordan is it's always been Kobe. I mean, you know, hes he's got the moves. He's got an athletic game. I mean, he doesn't run all over people and <laughs> hold for a whistle.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love LeBron's game. Back up yeah. and then run full speed at the basket. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean I hear you. I probably wouldn't stand in front of him anymore either. Although, you know, who's the guy on the bulls? Uh Heinrich became my hero when he tackled them to the floor a couple of times when they when they struck that streak. Man, I I saw the Bulls the Bulls came to Orlando and Heinrich was walking past my spot and I said you're my hero, and I he couldn't even why. So you're the first guy that stood up to LeBron and took him
0: to the floor. He just laughed <laughs> <all> the whole way. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Well, there's the NBA talk, fans. We always talk NBA every week. Yeah. There you go.
1: What um, do you say, Kirby? Oh yeah, that's why you're not there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, he claims he's out on a date. I really doubt that. But
1: anyway, Kirby still won first base. I guarantee you that.
0: (laughs) Um. So anyway, we put out there that you were going to be on the show. Um. Everybody was excited. Um. I asked for emails and uh, you know any questions you have for Ernie. And you know the biggest topic of course was um. Everybody wanted to know about the Roar situation when they took your motor off the approval list. Um, And that seems to be the most of the questions we got. I I probably got at least 45 emails or more of the same question about Roar.
1: How many were from Roar?
0: (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, that was the main question. So if we could maybe just touch on that and please some fans a little, Um, you know, we don't have to go deep into it, but uh, obviously it was put back on the approval list. And, uh, you know, pretty much everything was settled now, I mean. But um, if you want to touch on that, I don't know what you can say and stuff, but go ahead.
1: I mean, I mean, the gist of it was, like most arguments, you know, two people or, or let's say, Roar and Trinity having a difference of opinion on what happened. You know, from my perspective, uh, at that time when we submitted the D35, 17.5, we submitted it to an independent lab, which is one of the great things that Roar put it in. Uh, it was headed up by Bob Ingersoll. and the process is you, for everybody, not just me. You, you you send in your samples to the lab, and they technically go through it. And if they say this is a go, it meets all the specs or whatever, they they'll take the you know the epoxy off the wire, they'll measure. The wire, they'll, they'll measure the stators, everything. And if, if they come back to you and say, this is a go, at that point, you make the motor. Nobody's making, you know, 20,000 motors without an approval that it's going to be legal. And then after you get the approval, then it has to go to the executive board, and they make the final approval to say, this motor goes to the market. Uh, so we got that. I mean, the motor was uh, legal for 10 months. And, um, you know, for the past 20, 25 years, the way we measured motors, everybody, is, you know, you took the epoxy off a certain way because, you know, you've got temperatures got to be right. The process has got to be right to get it off because when you get the thing too hot, the wire swells. And uh, you measure it with a micrometer or a caliper or whatever. And this was my point. You know, I could take 25 motors, or you could take 25 motors from any hobby shop you want right now, and measure them that way, and all of them are legal. Mm-hmm. But somewhere between then and then, Roar decided that they were going to change the way they test the motor. They they used a different piece of equipment, which obviously is they say is uh, more accurate. Uh, th- th- we never got like a I don't know a sheet of paper which says it, it doesn't clear this or it doesn't clear that. We got a phone call at like you know midnight, uh, I think it was January eighteenth saying you know it's taken off the approved list and from more perspective, that's that's was our sign that's what we that's what we felt is wrong on roar's side, even though they changed the way they Test the motors, the parameters. At that time, Steve Bond was the president. He his his mindset was: I don't care if I change the parameter or not. This is the rule, and it's DQ'd. Going through six months or whatever in in court, oh, we never got to court, but through the lawyers. I mean, the difference between the wire was half of a hair follicle. Wow! Which most you know, lawyers that were involved in this case, regardless of who they represented, thought the case was crazy. And, and it probably was. I mean, we both spent a lot of money and his, his bad will still and whatever. But Steve Merck, who's the new war president, came into the picture after he got elected in January. And, you know, we flew to Washington, D.C. in June. And, you know, hashed it out, like, you know, two guys and the lawyers were there, but basically Steve and I just hashed it out. I mean, he's a good guy. I think he, he's a, you know, a patient guy. I think he's open-minded. Uh, he listened to my um, explanation. I listened to his. We didn't necessarily agree on everything, which you never do. But at the end of the day, in six or seven hours, we came to an agreement, which I think is good for both sides. I mean, you know, people say to me, "Was well, the agreement good?" I mean, my thing is, if if both parties think they didn't get a good deal, it's normally a good deal. This is fair, and um, you know, uh, that nightmare is over. Not only for me. I mean, honestly, we had to. We felt we had to bring the lawsuit for for several reasons. And it really wasn't about, you know, training team drivers or whatever, but we sold an enormous amount of those motors to consumers everywhere, you know, nationwide and overseas. And part of that, part of the reason why people bought those motors was because Roar approved that motor. So, I mean, you know, we both needed to take some responsibility for that. And I think at the end of the day, Steve Merck said, look, these people did pay their money. We, we approved this for whatever. You know, those people should be allowed to use their motor, which is, was my point all along. And, you know, for me, there were two solid points in this, you know, that, that we were hoping for. One was that people could use the motor again, that, that felt they bought this motor and, and now became a paperweight. And two was to get the independent labs restored. And, um, I think that's a great thing for racing, not only for me, but for everybody. And, and has agreed to do that. And I think, uh, I think it's September one, the, uh, the war independent lines will be back in force. And, you know, I think Roar is, you know, making some good chances, uh, good changes. They really want the organization now to be transparent. So, you know, people know what's going on. And I think if you know they fit, they they come through with you know a lot of what they're saying, and and I think Steve Mertz going to be a good leader for them. I think it's only help all of us. I mean, we need to put the, the, the you know advice in this, this you know beside and just get back to having fun and growing this industry.
0: Yeah, and um, boy, during that whole time, you got a lot of support from a lot of um, customers and tracks. I noticed. On Facebook, um, there was even a page started. I was um, amazed the, the the output. I mean, naturally, you know, you
1: you have some people that don't agree with you, but for the most part, I mean, the backing we got from our customers and friends was just, you know, I was shocked. I was, you know, floored. I mean, it was just great.
0: You know, and I said on the podcast during that time, I said, "I think this like kind of like uh, re-energized you." Oh, yeah. I mean, you know,
1: I don't know. I mean, I was pretty energized. I mean, you know, you got to figure. I mean, I think last, last year, I mean, we sold by far the most Brussels voters of anyone. And, you know, we were we were on a roll. And then this comes and it, you know, it kind of kind of derailed us a little. But, you know, I try to stay focused on. What we needed, and I think what we needed was these customers again to not only have faith in me, but to have faith in war too, that they can believe when war says you can buy this motor, you know, right. you can. And I think Steve Merck, you know, deserves some credit for that because, you know, I think people are going to respect war for that. I mean, yeah. it's it's bigger than just this small racing community, which a lot of people, racers, don't understand that the market's much bigger than that. I mean we need a we need a space for everyone. But we can't just dedicate everything towards racing. I mean yeah. there's a lot of people that depend on these rules to be raced all over the all over the world. You know, people like countries like Australia, France, they they're still running war rules. So, you know, it has wide impact.
0: Well again uh yeah you had a lot of fan support it was almost like everybody circled the wagon there you know like uh it was really cool to see that at the time actually i mean uh no, it was not cool what happened but just to see no, the support yeah. and everything and yeah and i think you realized then too like wow we got a lot of uh customers and fans out there that are backing us up here and i don't know i just think it kind of like i always said like i woke up the sleeping giant a little and uh created this buzz and uh hey sometimes controversy is good so
1: like Reggie Jackson says as long as you spell the name right
0: (laughs) (laughs) exactly well hey there it is in a nutshell fans that were asking so that was uh you know everything's good now and hopefully everything remains that way Uh, like you said uh, new president so yeah I mean I think you know I'm And I got to say, you know, over the years, I've been a
1: a pretty big adversary roar. But, you know, this is the first time I think I feel that there's good growth potential here. And I finally think manufacturers, not only me, but other manufacturers, too, are going to find that maybe, finally, we're going to be able to work hand in hand. I mean, I I think, you know, some of those racers think that the manufacturers want to run Roar And that's not the case at all. I mean, I certainly don't want to. I don't have enough time to do that. But what I'd like to do is bring my input into it from 32 years of being in the business and just put my input in and then let Roar vote on it. But, I mean, sometimes if they don't have any input from any of the guys who have the most vested interest in this, this is how we make our living. It's hard, I think, to pass votes or, or pass rule changes when... All your affiliates have no
0: idea what's going on. And yeah. you know, uh, we were talking uh, now. You know, you mentioned brushless motors, and of course, uh, the the other big question we got from a few fans. But uh, Russell Boyd in California asked your opinion. What up, Russell? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he asked your uh, Ernie's. What is Ernie's opinion on brushless compared to brush? And I I listened to an interview you did at Snowbirds recently, and uh, uh, I know you mentioned how you feel that brush motors are actually better for the industry.
1: Well, I mean, it depends what the definition of best is, but I mean, I think with that interview, they asked me what my perception would be if the industry didn't change. If okay. we were still right. running brush motors and nickel metal hydride. And I think this goes back to kind of like without calling anybody out or, or trying to be disrespectful to anybody because I'm not. But at that time, I think Dawn was the president of the war. And uh, I think you know, she was trying to do as good a job as she could do. But at that time in the industry... The industry was rocking. I mean, brush motors were doing good. Nickel metal hydride sales were good. RC cars in general were good. And the brushless motors were brought up, and these lipo batteries were brought up. And again, I think they made that change too quickly without doing enough research on it. I mean, there's a lot of things that people you know, are listening or just go in and buy a pack or something at a hobby shop don't really realize the pains that a lot of the manufacturers have gone through with this lipo. I mean, there's constant rule regulations. There's constant shipping regulations. You know, you can't ship a lipo battery pack to the USPS anymore, postal service. You have to ship that FedEx or, or, or UPS. There has to be special, you know, uh, documents, hazardous documents, You know, the the shipping cost on the batteries versus a nickel metal hydride to a lipo are ridiculous. Uh, You know, brushless. I mean, you remember the old brushless myth. And I remember, you know, I'm on a call a spade a spade with Bob Novak telling us that, you know, you put this brushless motor in, they all run the same, and they never blow up. Yeah. And that is not true. I'm not saying Bob was lying. I'm saying Bob didn't realize that it it, it wasn't a true statement. I mean, every brush was so different. I mean, if it was all the same, if every motor ran exactly the same, race it would be over anyway. There'd be absolutely no reason to race. It'd be all the same speed all the way around the track. But like every like every electric motor, there's some difference in consistency. There's still some Chinese girl or an American worker, whoever it is, is gonna hand wine that stator. That maybe he's having a tough day or maybe she's having a tough day and there's some variance. There's still gonna be some variance in the rotor material and the magnet material. I mean, it's not, you know, all it's cracked up to be and from my perspective in an economy that we exist in now I think it's way more difficult for a, a dad to go into a hobby shop, buy a car kit, whatever car kit, and then buy a $150 lipo pack and a $150 you know, brushless motor. And that's a big investment up front where he could have bought you know, a $30 brush motor and a, a 50 or $60 nickel metal hydride pack. I mean it's it's a different going to the counter, it's different. I mean it's the it's the old thing when we saw we were making on road cars, you remember, I wanted to make the best on road car with all the parts in the car. I mean everything in the box, aluminum pieces, whatever. We never could outsell associated on the cars. And I always say to myself, Why? Our car's so much better. The problem is the twelve L or the whatever kit they had, the kit was reasonably priced. They didn't have any extra. So you bought the car and then you bought the aftermarket parts. And you could buy the parts when you wanted to. It wasn't as big a hit as it was when you bought one of our cars. And I think that's what's happening with brushless. Sure, brushless is better if you're just going to knock around in the backyard. You know, you and Kirby are going to goof around and just run over <laughs> each other. Yeah, the that's <laughs> brushless is better, but from a race standpoint, it's exactly the same or worse than what we did before. I mean, come to a big race, anybody that says, you know, Charlie or Dita or any of these guys aren't doing more work than they used to do, I've never been to an on-road race. I mean, they're still looking for a half of a tenth of a second somewhere. You know, the battery packs, if you run them to too long, they puff. As soon as they puff and swell, they're no longer any good. You know, how many battery manufacturers are replacing the puff packs? I don't, you know, there's a lot of variables there. I just think we'd be better off. And then, you know, look at an old brush motor versus one of these. You know, I guess I'm old school, but to me, I love the way the brush motors look. They look like a real motor. Not an an aluminum bar with two shafts sticking out. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, it's each his own. I mean, you know, uh, I think, you know, racing is good today. I mean, it's okay. I wish we had more entries at races. I think there's many, many reasons why we don't or that can be better. You know, I think when our economy comes back, if it does, that'll make it better. I think war can make it better. I think people need to stop being divisive and try to work together, whether you're an outlaw club or... Whatever you got to put the fun back into this. Stop, in, you know, insinuating that anybody who's fast is cheating. We've been going through that for you know what, 30 years. I think yeah. that fun's got to be instilled into it, and and that's when people talk about the old days. That's why the old days were so good. I mean, I remember, I remember when the the second Cleveland ended, whatever it was, 8:01 on a Sunday night. 8.02, I was thinking about next year. I mean, you yeah, know, that just doesn't happen anymore. You know, I couldn't wait to get there to see these associated guys or to see Brady or see what big teams were coming in. It, it just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And, you know, there's no rivalries, really. because They're all gone. I mean, you know, Gene and Roger, you know, Pops, You know, that was a big rivalry, Losey and Associated. I mean, they're still there, but those characters that made racing, you know, as much as I disagreed with Gene in probably everything, he was a character. I mean, you know, sure, I wanted to be Gene, and Gene wanted to be me. but, I mean, those are the guys that that made this industry. Pops Losey, you know, Joe Mack, Don McKay, you know, it was just, you know, race. We need that again. We need to have some legitimate rivalries that that aren't hate-filled and just good fun. You know, like every other sport has. You know, why do you watch NASCAR? You you know, you you got your fan and you got a guy you want to boo for, you know?
0: Right. So how how do you think we get back to those days, though, as far as getting the rivalries back?
1: I I think probably, you know, war, for, for big racing anyway, probably has, the the most influence in that and i think they're on the road i mean you know i went to the west palm beach nationals in florida a couple of weeks back it was the first war race i had been to in a long time and i gotta say you know they had this race crew with jimmy babcock a few other people and they came in and they won the race i mean they had their own tent set up they did their own tech they ran their own race it was it was a pretty sweet deal I think that's a great start. I think if, you know, if war becomes more and more transparent and I don't understand why we don't have a a driver's, like a seating, like they do in tennis or golf, who's the number one driver in the world? Who's the number two? Who's number three? You need to get rid of a lot of these people who are sandbagging. You know, guys that have been racing for 20 years that are still running stock. I mean, honestly, not to sound like a, you know, but I mean, if, if I put myself and a couple of other team guys in a, in a room with a computer and a program, we, we could set up a, a seating list for the whole country in probably two hours. And then you could say, you know, uh, one to 50 is running, you know, pro and 50 to whatever on stock. And, that, and that's another thing I'd like to see. I'd like to see getting rid of all these millions of classes and go back to what we used to. You got a a modified class, and you got a stock class, just 17.5. That's it. And I think the difference, if you walk into a track, and you see these two huge classes, if you're a spectator, and then you see what we got today, you got 57 classes with five cars in each heath, it's a lot more impressive to see the two classes. And at the local level, you're going to get more entries in those particular classes. I mean, you know, it's got to be exciting. You've got to draw people in to spend this kind of money. You know, and, you know, I mean, what do we got? I mean, I, a lot of people say they want to slow the cars down. First thing, I think that's a mistake. I mean, I think all we have in this industry is speed. We're selling speed. Once the speed is gone, you might as well build a model. But if you're going to run the course, social around the track where it's no longer fun, I think that's another problem. Although no. I must say, I think the vintage, you know, fans and series is great. And and I, you know, with the Formula Ones, I think this year F1 is going to be really big with that VTA series. You know, they they limit the motor, they limit the battery. But I think once those rules become clearer and more well defined by VTA, hopefully we'll all get together. I think you know that could be a beginning again, of some entry level people coming in because it's a it's a much smaller entry price to get into that. And I think we need that. You need to build some sort of a bridge you need to get some people from the local track and get them into this series of big time racing. But I mean, if you had seated drivers, you could have maybe five big races across the country and then have the same thing golf or tennis has, you know. This is the number one driver in the world. This is the number two. I mean, people want to reach or attain goals. Right now, there's probably like 400 races, and none of them are connected. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure. Uh, A scale, you know, you could say, you know, most of the associate guys are Cavallari or, uh, you know, all these guys are normally, either, those guys are going to be in the top five guys. But, you know, if you had that for each scale, I think it's a cool idea. I think those guys who want to fight it out to be number one. And then you got the guys who aren't so you know that kind of dedicated can't can't race every day. You can't quit their job and race at a factory, but they still want to race. You know they run in the seventeen five class. You do the same thing there. Who's the number one 17 class driver in the world? Who's number two? You do the same thing they do with golf. You know, the Masters is worth this many points. The Cleveland is worth this many points. Whatever. It's e- easy to figure out. I love it. Yeah. I think it, you know. I think you got to give people incentive. you got to give them a reason to do this. It can't just be tedious. So you got to go out of the track and try to be your friend. After a while. I mean, I think that's old. Yeah. I'd rather run over you or Kirby with an 8-scale truck. Especially <laughs> Especially Kirby. I cannot believe that Kirby dissed me. He was in every other broadcast except mine. For a woman?
0: Well, no, he's uh, for a chick.
1: (laughs) I think Kirby should uh, come up tomorrow and at least tell us what base he got to. Even even if it is a lie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Maybe I should text him and see what base he's on right now. Yeah. Text him quick. To see if he responds.
1: Tommy's getting beat. He's getting beat up pretty bad by not being here. <laughs> not here to
0: not here to defend himself, and here we'll run up. him over. Um.
1: Wait a minute. Breaking news. I just got a breaking news from ESPN. Dwight. Oh.
2: Has,
1: Dwight has just announced that he will not be able to make a decision by Friday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Thank you. You got me all excited there for a second. All right. Well, okay. Let's skip around here. We'll 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 bounce around. I got a few questions, and then I'll give let me, you me, go. Give me, give me some hard questions. Well, I what? got nothing hard, but uh, somebody's in... gotta want some dirt out there. Come on, guys. Well, we did, we did have a question. Let me. Uh... <laughs> I think uh, we answered that one from Russell uh, here, and here's one from Tyler Weaver. He wants to know: uh, Does Trinity plan to get back into making aluminum or graphite hop-ups again? Uh, example: Matt Francis Kinwall type optional parts.
1: Yeah, probably not, because again, different, different part of the industry. I mean, back then, when we were doing the Matt Francis line and the Kinwall line, I think a lot of the cars back then had very brittle plastic parts, we were, like most people, you know, maybe making the same exact part out of aluminum or changing it a little and, you know, and making it out of aluminum with different colors. But, again, you've got, like, C owned by Horizon. And what we ran into the trouble was we, we sell to just about every distributor, but some distributors didn't want to promote Low C because you know, they didn't have it. And when you get to that point, when you're making aluminum parts, you know, you cut your volume down by a third or fourth. It's hard to to keep up with that volume. So we decided at that point to pull out. I mean you got companies like RPM who's doing a great job of selling aftermarket parts. You know, my vision now is to stay within what we know. And we have so much more work to do with electric motors and batteries. Even say, you know, right now I've got four battery lines. I mean, you know, B, which is our, you know, inexpensive line. We've got titanium, which is carried by most of the distributors, which is a, a great product, but at a, a low-level price. You got the Revtech 100C, which is one of our best packs and probably the most famous. And you got the Sting Packs, which are, you know, probably our biggest high-end packs. We got four lines there. I mean, it takes a lot just to order those and keep up with the specs and the changes and etc. You know, I want to get into some electric flight, and, and again, that's going to take more time. I want to get more into the 8 scale electric. We're in the process now of revamping our whole off-road line, our quad motors and our eight-scale motors. We had them with one vendor, which we didn't really have as much success as I liked. I didn't motors with that f- fast, but we had quality control problems with them. We're now moving that with all new designs toward our d 35 vendor. And I know the motors are going to be incredible, and we're going to try to get more... Involved into that segment of the market and off-road, you know, we got JR Mitch now. He's doing a lot of testing. Uh, You know, uh, John Benoit. We have a lot of people locally that are helping us, and I'm really pretty excited about that. So I want to try to, you know, stay more focused on motors and batteries, and you know, working on you know a lot of new product accessory items, but they don't necessarily deal with cars. And, and the other thing is with cars, I mean, you know, I think if somebody you selling products like mine, you know, motors and batteries, I need to be somewhat neutral. I mean, if I start making stuff for Associated or something like that or LoSI, or I get tied to one manufacturer or another and limit myself on who wants to run a Trinity Motor or a Trinity Battery Pack or whatever, I mean, honestly, I don't care who runs the Trinity Pack or Trinity Motor. My objective is to get across the finish line first. I mean, if somebody's got a Trinity Motor that's running uh, an associated car, I'm going to do everything I can to help them at the race. I don't see the car anymore. What I see is, you know, promoting my brand. Um,
0: very good there. Uh, you know, you mentioned John Bernard. Yeah. Uh, actually, we have a question here from John Bernard somewhere here. I what up, John? It. What up? What up?
2: What up?
0: Where are at, John Bernard? Usually he's on Skype. I could probably even, if he was on, I could have called him and get him on here for you. <laughs> uh, uh, well, you know, he you touched on this already. We really don't need to jump into it, but John did, you know, John wanted to, uh, he said brushless motors and light poles were a huge change for RC. How hard was it to make the jump and stay on the leading edge? And having advanced so far, where can we go from here? Well, I mean, we already touched on all that um, with the lipos and brushless. Um, Yeah.
1: I mean, we can make big jumps. I mean, the problem is the more jumps you make, the more expense you bring. I mean, there's more more technology that we're not even using, but it's too expensive now.
0: Um, He says, can you tell Ernie thanks for the great products and uh, an opportunity to be on the team? Yeah, thank you for representing, John. And that he does. He is everywhere racing. Yeah, he's very—he's right. a great guy. Um, another question from... Uh, we got a question from Buell Curley. Uh, this goes back to slot cars, Ernie. He says, uh, as a national champion slot car racer, is there anything that Ernie thinks could bring back the popularity of wing car racing? Or is it on its deathbed? Now, you now you are uh, racing slot cars, I see, on your Facebook page and stuff. Yeah. You I, I, racing?
1: I I was racing a lot. Unfortunately, our squad car center, which was about ten minutes from my house, closed a few months back, and I got pretty talked about it. And I haven't raced since. Tony is racing, and his but he's driving a lot because you know now he, if he's got a race at a a place in Jacksonville, you know he normally he still races where we used to. It. He'll go the week before and practice, and then drive back, and then go to the race and. I, I just haven't had time to get involved in it. I, I think I'm going to go to the next race with them, which is at uh, the Viper Pit. Uh, but lane cars—I mean, all I can say is for me, I mean, when I raced as a kid, uh, the cars obviously didn't go anywhere near as fast as as they did. I don't even know what the records are now, but I remember I had the world the record do King track at five hundred laps. I mean, they probably
0: do seven or eight. I'm losing you a little bit, Ernie. Yeah, I mean, can you hear me now? Yeah. Ernie's. By, by the way, Ernie fades in and out because he's in his Dwight Howard locker that he has in his uh, in yeah. his uh, house. I have Dwight locker, and I'm just hoping and praying that he comes back to the magic. I'll
1: tell you a quick <laughs> funny story about Dwight, but you got to get me back on this topic, which we're on, which I already forgot about. But, you know, I, I've sat next to that bench for I don't know how many, five, six years. I mean, I, I've been like two inches from Dwight and, you know, built him some more cores the whole route. He's never said a word to me. Okay, when when he came back here as a Laker that time to Orlando, I mean, the whole place was out for him. I mean, I was screaming at the top of my lungs from the side. I mean, that was the first time that Dwight said some shit to me that I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. But, it was, but it was nice to understand that he did recognize me. <laughs> oh. but I, hey. What were we talking about? about uh, uh, the
0: popularity of wing car racing and slot cars. Do you think it's dead or could it make a comeback?
1: I, I, I hate to say this, but first I think it's dead. I mean, you know, I can't even... I tried coming back to run a wing car. I couldn't even follow the car. It was so fast. I mean, basically... The way it is now is you run the car almost flat-punched around the old track. If it falls off, you build a new car. I mean, to me, there's no racing involved in that. I mean, the, the, what they're trying to get going, which Tony's been a big proponent of, and Ron Hirschman and Tony Neumeister, they're, they're doing this retro class, which is old-school chassis, no wings on the cars. You actually got to drive the cars. And it's fun. I mean, I had a lot of fun doing it. And, uh, you know, as that builds, I think that could help stock car racing. But, you know, stock car racing is still faced with the same pitfalls they had when I was a kid. I mean, one, the rents are still too high. Two, it's an industry in a cocoon, you know, run by a few distributors that don't want anybody to know about it. So it's you know, uh, it, nothing's changed as far as I'm concerned, unfortunately. And how long ago was that, you know, thirty years ago. So I wish I had better news, but that's just my perspective. perspective. I, I no, think they get, more, they get way more Yeah, more way more flexi entries, you know, probably ten to one than they would at a, a wing car right nationals. I mean, I think I think the last wing car nationals didn't even have a main event. I don't and they had less than eight drivers. I could be wrong. And I, I only know what Tony tells me, which is probably all slanted towards red, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: let's see. Richard Barnett from Texas asks, will we ever see a Trinity off-routine again? Now, you just signed J.R. Mitch, so I think that's what's bringing his question up.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, what's the guy's name again?
0: I'm sorry. Uh, Richard Barnett from Texas. Richard Barnett.
1: Hey, Richard. Uh I mean, we definitely do. I mean, big-time off-road racing now, which I call big-time racing, would be like the Cavalieries and people like that. They're all linked into car companies, and, you know, it's very hard. All those guys are paid their contracts, and it's hard to secure – a big name driver we're we are gonna we're gonna get getting back into our flow with jr's help and we are gonna do it the slow way which i believe is the right way and probably
0: ernie for, if, ernie for some reason i'm losing you like you, you're muffled and then you... is it any better i don't know is it any better yeah that's better but it seems like uh you turn away and maybe maybe if you turn or something just try and keep your head forward Okay. <laughs>
1: Um, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're, we're going to do it, and we're in the process of doing it. But we're going to do it at a grassroots level. I mean, we're going to try to look for younger drivers who are up and coming, and uh, local guys here. And of course, if any opportunity comes about to nab a you know a big name driver, we're certainly going to be interested in it. So, all you guys out in Cali, when those contracts come up in uh, in December, please know the checkbook is open. <laughs>
0: Mm, there you go. And there is a checkbook. The checkbook's open for one guy in Pennsylvania too. Hmm. got to get back on that payroll.
1: Yeah. I just got I just got back on it. It's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not well, as, it, I'm not as tan as I was, but you know, it's yeah. a lot productive this way. <laughs>
0: You know uh, that again. That question was from Richard Barnett. And actually, we had a few questions um, uh, come in through email about an off-road team because I think once you signed J.R. Mitch, people yeah. were like, "Whoa, what's going on here?" You know.
1: Well, I mean, certainly so, off-road. Uh, I mean, the, it's still the biggest sector of the industry, and you know, it's not that we're uh, ignoring it. I mean, will we still sell more into that segment than we do the others, but right now the way it's set up. Our teams are set up where we have, you know, a very strong oval team with uh, David Mayhew and Pete and Glow. You know, those two guys are are super fast. I mean, I'd be confident in going to any oval race in the country, and I think we'd be favored to win. Um, You know, the on-road team, you know, we've got Andrew, and we're getting ready to make a, a pretty big announcement on two more other drivers because we're already starting to, get ready for the upcoming worlds next year they're going to be in florida and you know we certainly you know want to expand in the off-road uh, market as well but you know it's like the nba it's not as easy as just writing a check <laughs> i mean if, right. it was, if it was easy it was just as easy as writing a check it'd be like the old days everybody would be running for me but you know, it's been changed, and you just got to work within the framework. And you know, again, like you said, and I said, and I admit it, I I was away for a while, and you know, some of those guys may have lost confidence or whatever, or they forgot about Trinity. You were you know, now it's my job to make them remember. So you know, that's where we are.
0: Yeah, judging from all the emails that we got on the off-road question, um, there's a lot of people anxious to see Trinity back in there. So. Yeah. Um, Let me get to, this guy just wrote to me an email, uh, just gave me his first name, Robert, in Indiana. Just wanted to say thank you, Ernie, for everything that you've done for the industry over the years. And I, let me see what he says here. Um, I appreciate Jim Dieter helping me out at a lot of races. Can you touch on your relationship with Jim Dieter briefly?
1: Uh, Sure. I mean, uh, I I first met Jim at, at the U.S. Indoor's in Cleveland. Well, I was in the 80s sometime, I don't remember. I mean, we had a pretty strong team of Joel and Bob Light at that time and a couple of other people, but Joel and Bob Light were the two big guys. And we came to Cleveland, and this guy from Chicago was running really fast. It happened to be Jim. I mean, most people don't know, but Jim is an incredible driver, you know, on road and, I mean, off road at Dirt Oval. I mean, that guy could really wheel. I mean, he's been national champion a couple of times. And uh, he ran really good, and we, we made him a deal right there to run for us. And I think he finished third at that event. Dole one Bob Light was second, and Jim was third. And Jim was running a lot higher. I mean, he had a legitimate shot to, be, you know, maybe get second, or he might possibly even challenge Dole in that race. So. That's where we started and we just became really good friends. I mean, he's one of the most loyal people I've ever met and he's one of the few people in the industry that, you know, I trust with any I trust with my kids. I mean he's he's never done anything to hurt me, he never never would and he's just a class guy and one of the hardest workers I've ever um uh, ever met, And I mean, for my money, he's the best motor guy in the industry. I mean, we walk into a track and, and we'll, you know, you can't always have the fastest stuff. Sometimes we will go there and it's not. I mean, Jim will, Jim will stay a whole night or week. I mean, he won't quit until they say the race is over and that's all you can ask for. I mean, I know he's 150% in our camp and vice versa. So, you know, we've been friends for a long time, and I think we'll be friends forever.
0: Yeah, great guy. We had him on the show. You know, I
1: heard that. I I didn't hear that. I have to go back and look that up. And actually, Jim only answering in my phone calls, and I hardly ever (laughs) talk to him, so I never (laughs) know.
0: Wow. (laughs) <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Joe Ivo wanted to get your opinion on pan car racing uh, do you think that uh, can ever make a comeback again
1: I, mean, I think it's making a comeback I mean I think 12 scales you know getting bigger and bigger and uh, and you know there's some big movement in that and uh, you know touring I'm a little worried about but yeah. I think I think the, you know oval racing I think it's going great I mean, you know, with their paying cars. And I mean, Oval this year was phenomenal for us. And, you know, we really care about the racing. Right? In fact, I'm thinking about, you know, sponsoring a big Oval race uh, this next year. Uh, in fact, I want to try to have it at, uh, at one of Boylan's permanent tracks. But, yeah, I want to get more in Oval and uh, anything we do. I mean, that's my first wild. Out of slot cars, I mean, 12-scale 12, 12 on-road racing is, you know, for me is F1. That's where we started. I mean, that's where Joel started, and I think it's the purest form of racing.
0: I'm gonna just rip through these real quick for you, Ernie, because I know we've been on for a while. Uh, Gene Perez, okay, uh, in South Carolina. Uh, you were just talking about oval racing and on-road. Uh, he just he wanted to know why uh, uh, Trinity was not a sponsor of the Snowbirds anymore. Now, you, you know, I guess you you said no questions, hold bar. So there you no, go. no,
1: no. Well, we are we we are a sponsor of the Snowbirds. We've been a sponsor every single year, but we weren't the major sponsor. Uh, right. That's why I, I think, I think he's getting that. the title year.
0: sponsor. He yeah. Said. The title. yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think uh, and and that was you know by choice, not against Mike. I mean, it was it was the question of budget and where we right. could. At the time, we were we needed money for tooling, and it was either do that or do the sponsorship of the race. I mean, I've since asked Mike that, you know, if A-Main, for some reason, doesn't want the sponsorship, that we would take it back again. But uh, we've always supported the Snowbirds, and so we continue to do so. I mean, it's my favorite race. I mean, especially we yeah. you live somewhere. I mean, it might sound silly, but, you know, since I live in Florida now, and this is my home... The Florida races are more important to me than anything. I mean, people ask me why I sponsored the, uh, the Nationals at West Palm Beach when I was in a lawsuit with the war. And, you know, my answer to that was it had nothing to do with the lawsuit. I mean, what it had to do with was this is my home. I mean, I wanted to support the Florida track and the Florida races who so support me, and we want to support racing. Yeah, you know, it's the same thing with the World Championships next year. It's going to be held at Kissimmee. You know, we're going to do everything we can to support that and and uh, and try to win it. I mean, th- those races to me now mean more than they ever did because I live here.
0: Well, there we go. And, and Ernie's there at Snowbirds every year, every year. So, um, Michael, Michael Murray in in, in uh, Georgia, Michael Murray in Georgia. Uh, he asks, will we see TRC back? Uh, uh, Whoa, what, what are you doing in the background? What's Nick doing? Is he playing Call of Duty in the background?
1: If he was, he'd be cursing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that. Hey, I was in there playing with him uh, a couple weeks ago, him and his buddies. You're absolutely right on that.
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny. When they got Call of Duty, I had no idea. You know, they get the headsets and stuff, and I, I was asleep. Nick pretty much stays up all night, especially during uh, summer breaks. And Tony, Tony was coming over, I think, on a Saturday morning to pick up some papers to go have coffee. He, you know, he gets up early too. So uh, the bell rang at like six a.m., and I'm coming out of my bedroom, and all of a sudden, open the door, and I hear this screaming and yelling and cursing coming from the other side of the house. And that was the first time I realized that what the heck, what Nick does on these <laughs> on these
2: headphones.
1: You know, I yeah. couldn't believe it.
2: Uh-huh.
1: No, that's not Nick. That's some uh, Florida pet that is uh, driving me crazy out here. Sounds <laughs> 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 like a duck or something, but it's not. I forgot what it is. And that's right up. You hear it all night. Nice. Uh, Funny stuff.
0: TRC the, uh, foam tires, yeah.
1: I would say again, probably not, and for this reason, two reasons. One, you know, foam 12 scale or foam 10 scale, you know, and and Kirby can tell you this, and Ryan, it it, it, nothing's changed. It's an enormous amount of uh, of intense labor. I mean, you know, you need the jet for it to cut the cut the donuts out. Uh, they still glue it the same way, either by ca or with uh, wood cement. I mean, it's enormous, this dirty job. Especially in Florida, we would need even more vents and things that so we had in New Jersey. I don't know if you remember, but we had a whole room with uh, with alarms on and and uh, vents that we couldn't get a seal unless we had this, where they just glued the rims. Do you remember that?
0: Oh, yeah, I do. Yep. Yeah.
1: I mean, just to build that room, I believe, by then, you know, with those vents, it was like 30 grand just to do that. And, and then it's the rubber. I mean, the rubber changes so much. I mean, you know, we, we, 20 years ago, we'd buy all the rubber at the same place. Now that rubber really is not competitive. Most of the good rubber is coming from Japan. And, again, it's the same thing. If you're going to buy from middlemen, the prices are so much higher the only way to do that is to go right to the maker. And to go to the maker, it's a it's a vessel or a container. And it's not something I want to invest my money in because the return is it's not as good. But if I got back into TRC i I'd have the same problem. I think Jack used to have, or still has, you know, 50% of the stuff you're cutting is going to the team to promote it. And uh, it just... Not worth it for me anymore. There's a lot of guys making good tires. You know, Jayco, uh, mogum Marcus Mavis, the BSR. Uh, you know, tons of tons of good tires out there.
0: I used to love that water jet. I used to hide behind there to kill some time a lot. Anyway,
1: yeah, I think uh, it's crazy. I remember when I got the bill for that. I said to myself, again, <laughs> we're never going to pay for this."
2: <laughs>
0: That thing was pretty cool, though. It was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Raymond Corbin in New York asked, "Will we ever see Tech Talk back again?" <sighs> I You know,
1: that was the greatest. Bullet, I think that was the greatest bulletin we ever had in our city. I mean, it was the main, the main the John Foley, and uh, the problem for Tech Talk back then. To run as it, as good as it did, it needed, you know, constant supervision and constant, you know, yeah. uh, uh, I just there's just not the time to put into it anymore. And uh, unfortunately, with some of the other boards, which I won't even go off on anymore, it's 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 become more of an attack, uh, place than any really good discussion. I mean, if people are really interested in getting their cars better or setups better, there's so many different avenues. I mean, most of these good drivers are posting their setup sheets now. It's not like it was in the old days. I mean, if you walk up to a a driver, they'll tell you for the most part what they're running or try to help you. It's not like the old days. I mean, go back to the ratty days. I remember. This is going old, old, old school. Maybe Cliff Led or or Curtis Hustling or those guys who remember this, or Ralphie. I don't know how many others. But I mean, Joel was that kid, and we were running indoors in uh, in raddies, and the track was so small that the spectators sat on little benches all around the track. So when the drivers would come around the track, you'd have to lift your legs and, uh, and, and the cars could go around it. I mean, and these guys were so good, like Lavico, Joel, repeat Fusco, you know, Ken Clausen, those guys were so good, they could run on a track that's small. But it was like, you know, it was cutthroat back then. I mean, Joel was, I think, 12. He was leading the race, a four-cell race. And back in that those days, you know, there would takeouts all the time. And there was a guy named Bill Giannis. And he was tough as nails. I mean, and he ran Joel right off the track and cost him the national championship. And, you know, I guy went I went into him and got into him a little bit in his face. And you know, he basically I don't know if I can re- can you curse on this podcast or not?
0: Hell yeah, you can. Okay,
1: <laughs> but he said, you know, he, he didn't know who I was. He says if, if Joel can't take it, fuck him. And that was it. I mean, that's the way it was. I mean, I was probably pissed, but that's the race back then, you know? You know, drivers didn't... I can only imagine somebody well, going up to Kent Clawson and ask him for a setup. I mean, you know, I, I don't imagine what Kent would, would tell. I mean, when Kent ran for me once in Reno, Nevada, uh, you know, there was, there was an outdoor race, and I wanted to practice. The track was a dust bowl. But I mean, Ken was probably right. It was probably no traction. But I still wanted to go out there. Ken just ran his car flat, punched through the sleeper, and broke the whole course. So he didn't have to practice anymore. I mean, that's the way it was. It's not like it is today. So I mean, I think you could probably get information, good information, to probably any team. You know, my advice to people that that want to do better: come to a big race, even if you don't. You know, even if you don't race, come to Aurora Nationals and look around, look in the pits, you know, ask some of the top drivers, how do you do this? How do you do that? You know, when I raced flock bars, I was, I started out as a kid. I raced to folks' hobbies, like I said, and then I went into Brooklyn to a place called Buzzerama. Uh, I raced there every day. and we were running cars back then, like Cougarachas or Vipers or, you know, ready to run cars, and then one day... I saw uh, a magazine that was a newspaper called Scale Auto Racing News, and I opened this this newspaper up, and it was like cars like I had never seen. It was you know Tony and Bob Emmett and John Supras and Mike Stubbe, all these big time spot car drivers with cars that I had never seen before and there was a big race out in Nutley, New Jersey. Man, I had a car back then. We took a bus to go out there, and I had my slot car box, and I was going to race. And when I got there and looked at the track and looked how fast these guys were, I didn't even race. I didn't answer, but I walked around and looked and saw what I could find out, and that's how I got better. And, and that's the best advice I could give anybody. You know, if you want to be the best, look at guys who are the best. You know, look at Mayu and Oval. Look at, you know, Cavalieri and Off-Road. Look at these guys, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Andrew Knapp or uh, Kevin Ibaix or Josh Searle. Look at these guys in On-Road. I mean, uh, you know, you'll get more out of that trip, the one trip, than you probably get, you know, trying to race six months in your own club. Remember, the only way to go faster is to lose and run against somebody who's
0: better. There we go. That's good advice. Yeah, I mean, you know. Though that wouldn't work for me, though. But anyway. (laughs) Not for you. No, no, no. It wouldn't work for you. It probably wouldn't work for Kirby. No, that's true. Yeah, let's beat up on Kirby. And he still has not texted me back to tell me what base he's on. So we can assume he's still trying to swing.
1: I mean, in a way, I'm glad Kirby's not there because half of this podcast would have been dedicated to how good of an oval racer he was. I mean, I had to listen
0: to it all night. Almost be as bad as if the fabulous one was here. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, Barry, what's up, Barry? Barry, we know he's listening. He's a fan of the show. Yeah. Um, uh, real quick, I don't, let's see here. Philip in uh, Ohio. That's, the, that's all he gave me. Um, now he wants to thank you for all the great products over the years. And what is your favorite product that you? You uh came out with favorite car kit. It says uh, battery. Listen to that in the background. I know,
1: man. You try sleeping down here. We're uh, gonna have to.
0: Yeah, uh, your favorite project. Yeah, which one
1: came I mean, out? I would say probably there's two of them. I mean, the first one would have to be the monster stock, you know, horsepower stock motor. I mean, that was the first motor that we actually put in the box. Uh, It was the first huge seller, and, you know, it was the whole monster horsepower thing, and it kind of propelled us. And then the second one, which is a long story, was the Evolution 10, and that was uh, held at the Ranch Pit Shop, which was, you know, not only mine, but I think everybody's all-time favorite RC track in California. You know, it was owned by John Thorpe. And then Gil and Janalosi took it over, and it was the mecca of RC. I mean, if you went to an on-road race, I mean, that was it. I mean, I had goosebumps when I walked into that place. And uh, we'd come out. I mean, obviously, it was Associated's home track, and uh, Joel at that time was running an Associated car, and we had been working on the Evolution 10 on the side. Nobody knew about it. You know, Dieter had designed the whole thing from the scratch up. And uh, it was, you know, we'd run out, Joel would run out of a practice run. Somebody would grab the car. We'd run back to the pits and cover it with a towel, but nobody still got it, what what it was. And, and Joel went out for the first round of qualifying. I think he queued by, I don't know, a good margin. And, uh, you know, somebody announced that it was a the car. And, John Thorley was running the race at that track, and then he, he basically knew what was going on. He said, No, that's the, the new Trinity Evolution 10. And, uh, you know, for us, it was just a great way. I mean, we got a lot of hoopla. We wouldn't let anybody look at the car, it was towel the whole way through. Nobody got a picture of it, even after the winning. And uh, it was our first, you know, big, you know, on road car. So those two projects, because, you know, you know, I know how hard Tony and, you know, we worked on the motor and I know how hard Jim and Joel and I think even Junior helped us on the, the 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 car side of it. So those two would be my two favorites, you know, and Joel on uh, uh, the, the world championship. I mean, that was, and, you know, Tyree finished second, So it was a great weekend for us.
0: Um, I just got a couple more here for you and I'll let you go, Ernie. I know you're. No, no problem. Up, time up. Um, we got a, uh, from the Netherlands. We got an email, and I don't know how to pronounce the, these names at all. But uh, to me, it looks like Dan Schuring from okay. the Netherlands, and uh, he he just simply states, "Are you still are you looking for a promotional driver in the Netherlands slash Holland?" Friendly regards, Dan. Uh, <laughs> I think he's applying for the team here, so he wants to know if you'll sign him up.
1: Well, uh, you know, you can you did you can always contact me on Facebook on private message yeah. and send me a resume and we'll certainly take a look at it. I can tell you overseas for us now we're we're looking for agents in different countries. So if we had an agent in the Netherlands, which I don't think we do at the moment, uh, you know, that would be a key thing. But certainly send the resume and I'll get back to you. I mean I I answer everything on that. I mean most people will tell you I'm I'm pretty you know, I'm pretty addicted to Facebook and email, so you'll get an answer.
0: Cool. There you go. I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name right, but there you go, Dan. Actually I have a question here from it's actually a Twitter question. Here we go. And and this guy goes by the Twitter handle J. R. Mitch.
1: J. R. Mitch, that name sounds familiar. Is he verified?
0: <laughs> no uh let's see no it's not verified so we can't confirm this uh yeah i want to get verified by the way are you verified yet oh yeah mm, okay <laughs> uh real quick uh question for ernie what's your favorite part about being involved in the hobby industry from jr mitch
1: is that from, from jr
0: That's from J.R. Mitch. What's your favorite part about being in the hobby industry?
1: I mean, I I think it probably goes back from, you know, the day one in my mom's apartment in Brooklyn. I mean, I just, from that day, I just never thought about building something to make a profit on it, although I think probably everybody thinks the only reason why I do it is for the money. It's not. I mean, I, I do things now. For the competitive, you know, uh, mm. yeah, I love doing that. I mean, you know, the certified line of products that we're making now, the certified staters and the certified rotors, I do those myself. And, you know, people say, well, why don't you hire people to do it? Because sometimes I'm in there on a Saturday or Sunday doing that, but that's when I have time to go through the stuff. And people will say, well, why don't you hire some the people to do that? I, you know, I want to do it. I mean, for me, I get a great deal of satisfaction going to a race like at West Palm at, at Tim Potter's track, the, the Nationals, you know, with Dieter there, who knows, you know, a million times more than I do. But to give Dieter a stator that I picked out myself and a rotor and put that, and he puts it together and tunes it, and Matt goes out and wins the national championship, I get a lot of satisfaction out of that because I was a part of it and not just writing a check. So, I guess that still drives me. I mean, it's always driving me to try to be the best I could be. And, you know, always try to beat the best. I mean, it goes back to that Ratty story, you know, with Associated. I mean, you know, how you beat a team this big. I mean, yeah. you know, they were a great company. They're still a great company. I mean, you know. But, yeah, that was fun. For me, when I was doing it, we went to a race and we ran against Associated. You know, when I walked in there, I wanted to beat one person, Reedy. And we wanted to beat one person, me. I mean, you know, we hated each other in those eight minutes, but when it was all said and done, we were good friends. I mean, there was a respect there that, you know, never ended. And, you know, I know a lot of people think Mike and I didn't like each other. I mean, deep down, I don't think that was ever the case. I just think we were, we were true competitors. We wanted to rip each other's throat out. But when it was all said and done... You know, we just accepted it. I mean, Mike beat me plenty of times. And, you know, we had our share of wins, but it was fun.
0: Yeah, it made it fun. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, and you had the love and passion for the sport and and for the hobby. So, I mean, uh, you know. Hey, little do you know that when I started at training, you could have said to me, hey, I'm going to pay you in a bag of peanuts. I would have worked there anyway.
1: (laughs) I think we offered that and you turned it down.
0: No. <laughs> oh man. Actually, I did get paid in peanuts. hi right. Um, that's you know I could, you know a lot of these questions I'm scrolling through right now about Roar and stuff. We already touched on all that. Um, here's one from real quick. Uh, don't know how to pronounce your last name. I'm gonna say it's Roger Kellum from Colorado. He asked, would you ever plan on opening up your own racetrack?
1: I mean, it's, it, that's always been a dream. I mean, uh, you know, I, I wanted to open up a place like the Ranch. I mean, when when Losey took that over uh, from John Thorpe, you know, they ran a distributorship out of a small back room, and they were incredibly successful. I mean, they they took a niche market that that basically wasn't being catered to. I mean, you know, Junior and those guys would go out and race, and Pops and Rossetti and all those guys would, Jack Johnson, they'd go out and race on the weekends, and people would be calling Monday morning to find out what kind of setups they were running, you know, what's good, what's bad, and then RPS could just ship right there. And then you had the track. It was phenomenal. I mean, you know, I'd love to do that, but the problem becomes, you know, you reach a time in your life where, you know, it's just difficult when you've got a lot of responsibilities. You know, when I was, you know, young and had absolutely nothing to lose, it was much easier to do business. I mean, you know, I don't want to get off topic, but I don't know if you, you know the story about the Sanio. 1700 SCEs when that first came out. Did did I ever tell you about that? You know, we were buying, buying batteries from Sanyo, and we got a tip that this new battery was going to come out. And I knew it was going to be a game changer. And at that time, we were were buying from Sanyo, and the problem I had was I wanted an exclusive on the cell. And Sanyo came back to me and said, "Well, you can't have an exclusive because your credit limit." is it high enough to take the first loss? And, you know, again, being young and having no responsibilities and being a gambler or a maverick, I mortgaged my house and put my house up so I could get the whole first run. I mean, today I couldn't do that because, you know, I got three kids that count on me and I got a lot of other responsibilities. So a track, to, to build a track and location and... Uh, with the quality of race arena like Losi had, for me to do at this point in my life, I don't think I I have the enough time to do that. I mean, uh, running a track the way the Loseys did, and I think they ran the best race facility ever. It's a it's a twenty you know it's a twenty you know eighteen hour work week you know it's two, I mean work day, two shifts I mean they got a whole family in there, and I I think you know when I went out, I mean, I forgot what year it was, when I bought half Pelosi and I moved out there, I mean, you know, they were, they were done with the track. I mean, they wanted to sell the track because I mean, it, it's just too much of a headache. I mean, you're always there. So, I mean, it'd be great to have, and I hope somebody, you know, else could do something like that. But, you know, for me, that was the greatest, you know, racetrack ever. Mm-hmm. But it's in the cards for me today.
0: Now well, you could hire uh me and Kirby to come down there and run that for you anyway
1: I could, but you and Kirby wanted to work like five hours a day and four day week that uh, would we get too much done <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh man,
1: especially Kirby, especially Kirby
0: no doubt, and he still has not texted me back by the way.
1: I know what he's going to tell you he he was he was busy. <laughs> <laughs> The girl probably <laughs> stood him off. He probably
0: didn't even go on there, You know. <laughs> hey, this is from uh, David Grady in Florida. Uh, he just says uh, thank you very much for all you've done for the industry over the years, and can you please hit the Imperial March song? <laughs> Ow, how do you how do you think Trinity got the Evil Empire tag? I, don't
2: know.
0: Uh, I mean, I. Uh...
1: If I had to pick out one person, I I think he's probably Gene. I mean, I mean Gene. You know, I I think this liked me, you know, passionately, and I think anything <laughs> that went wrong, it was somehow my fault. And you know, some of it was for sure, but uh, yeah, that's probably what it came. I mean, it was it was a good rivalry, so in I mean, it, it just was. I didn't mind it. I mean, you know, early on, you know,
0: God. Good. I'll put it in the background yeah. while you talk.
1: Nobody will hear me.
2: Oh, they can hear you. Seriously? Yep. I can't even
1: hear myself. <laughs> No, I'd say early on, you know, you, you know, so many people believed most of the stories. And if it gets you, you know, like, you'd be hated. I mean, you'd sponsor a race and, and it introduce you and people would boo, you know. <laughs> but yeah. as I got older, you know, I just realized a lot of it was respect. I mean, you know, and I don't think anybody really, you know, no. Any harm to it. I mean, it was just a good rivalry between us and the associates. I mean, I wouldn't change anything. Yeah. That's
2: yeah,
1: all good fun. You know, when I came into the industry, I had a different perspective. And my perspective was to, to, you know, to succeed. And, you know, if you were in my way, I was going to run over you. And it wasn't that I didn't like you, it was just you were in my way. And, you know, some people don't like that type of attitude especially when you're in a hobby-type environment, which some people consider a hobby. I consider it a business from day one. And I honestly liked everyone in the industry. I mean, I had nothing bad to say about those people. I mean, I loved really, you know, I respected Gene. I had a good relationship with Roger. I loved Cliff Les. I mean, you know, it's just it was an end to a means, you know? And, you know, I'd I, I do it all over again. And, you know, I, I think I did it right.
2: <laughs> oh, shit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> when you walk around the house, uh, is, I, I just picture that plane, too. Even around the house, like, going to Nick's room. Nick, clean your room. And in the background, that's point Actually,
1: <laughs> actually uh, Little jewel carries a recording around it and runs in front of me with it playing. <laughs> <laughs> and when you see his school, I take the record and wrap it around Max's neck, and Max just walks around and drags it around the house. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't bring, would bring Max on now, but he's already sleeping. Yeah. Mm scenes over, he ate dinner, cleaned himself, and then ignored everybody and went to sleep.
0: Good stuff, man. Good stuff. Yeah, we have a lot of fun with it on the show, and we appreciate you uh, going with it, too. So. Hey, it was great. Loved it. Yeah. Um. That You know, hey, and I, I gotta thank you uh, for, uh, you know, blow some smoke up your ass here. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I thank you for uh, getting me uh, in the industry, uh, Trinity was my first job in the industry, and uh, um, boy, when I got the job there and I was so excited, um, I left my home in Pennsylvania and uh, went to Jersey not knowing anybody but Kirby Hand.
1: Oh, really? I didn't even know and,
0: that. Yeah, and um, so it, it was something I always wanted to do, though, and actually, it's a funny story. I had it in my yearbook. And they net what well, it was supposed to go in my yearbook, but they never printed any of my goals. Actually, really? but one of them was I wanted I wanted to work at Trend. Cool. That was one of my goals from high school, and uh, you can ask my girlfriend to this day. Uh, that's what I kept saying back in high school. I'm gonna go work in the industry, and uh, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity because I made a lot of great friends. Now you know to this day I still have them all just because I was working at Trinity. So
1: hey, I cool, man. That. Thanks for all your, your work, too. It's great to see the, the show being so successful, what? even though, you know, Kirby has nothing to do with it, obviously.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Although, yeah. I, I have to say, I am rooting oh, for what's Deniers that this you say, Oh, you are rooting I for said, Deniers I have this year? Say, I am. Yeah, I mean, I, I can no—I hate to say this, but I can no longer be a Jet fan as long as Sanchez and is still in uh, New York. I mean, it's just ridiculous.
0: It doesn't shock me. You jump around team to team. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> just easy bandwagon. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, hey, uh, um, so yeah, it was a lot of fun, and I uh, appreciate uh, appreciate you letting me get my foot in the door. Cool. Made a lot of good friends. Yeah, huh.
1: they, I mean, there are good guys in this industry. And we we had a lot of great friends in New Jersey that, that worked for us. Yeah, I mean, it's just great.
0: Rich Hawks, still in Jersey. Talk to him from time to time. Good guy. Yeah, good guy. Um, but, yeah, so that was cool. And uh, we were talking about it pre-show, uh, me and Kirby, uh, well, earlier in the first half of the show. We were young, so I don't know if we gave you 100% at Trinity because we were young, no responsibilities or anything. <laughs> uh, I th- I think if you were to hire me now, I'd be a different person. But, uh, I I was a pain in your ass back then because I was just a young brat. So now, man, I, I don't remember that at all. I think any guys did good. I mean, I had no problems
1: with you at all. Kirby, maybe. Yeah. I <laughs> I always have to try to look for Kirby. I'd always go to Ryan and say, where the hell is your brother? And he'd say, he's off somewhere. And I'd always say, man, I wish he could be like the good hand. <laughs> 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 no, Kirby was cool. It was fun. I mean, you know, I, 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 if somebody said to me right now, you go back and do that again with those that group, that same group, I'd do it in a second good oh yeah fun. I mean yep. I loved to do that. It was it was just so much fun. It was a new
0: challenge. Yeah, I know Kirby and I missed it a lot. Like as far as interacting with everybody and just hanging out, uh, like I said, again, we didn't give you probably a hundred percent because we were like we couldn't wait to get back to the apartment and just hang out, go to the mall and stuff like that. And Trinity was a place where we had to go like eight hours out of the day. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> but yeah, it was a good time so thanks again. So <laughs> So we appreciate you being on the show finally. We got, you know, I could be here all night, but we'll have you on the show again. It's not going to be another year down the road, so.
1: Cool. Hey, can I say one thing before we leave?
0: Sure. White, please stay. Please. You, uh, you've screwed
1: Orlando. This franchise has screwed up. And now I would really appreciate it for our close friendship if you would screw L.A. up. So please stay there. No other city have to put up with your nonsense. You are a cancer, and I hope you never win a championship. If I ever had to root against Le- you or LeBron, I think I would root for LeBron. And I hate him.
2: <laughs>
0: wow. I'm trying to get rid of him, Ernie. Come on now. I hear you, man.
1: This is the sad thing. Uh, the whole thing, I mean, you know, I, I feel bad in a way for the Lakers because, I mean, you know, the legacy they have, they have all the, the great big men. And for this guy to even consider leaving is an embarrassment to him and the Lakers. I mean, you got to be kidding. That's a storybook ending there. All you got to do is play. I know he doesn't want to share the spotlight with Kobe, but... Christ, I'd like to play with the, you know, the first best or second best player in the NBA. I mean, I remember, i tell you one more time, I know you guys want to go, but I mean, I remember Dwight, this was when he was, you know, going to, he was already saying he was leaving and it was a shambles in the locker room and I forgot who they were playing. But, you know, we we're getting blown out, and Dwight comes back to the bench. And, you know, I'm right there so I can hear this shit. Stan was the coach, and, and Dwight is, like, bitching and moaning to everybody that they got to get the ball in him And it was like, you know, a 12-year-old 12, 12 at the playground. And I remember Stan, who didn't take any shit from anybody, said, you know, Dwight, how are we going to throw the ball into you with with, with four or five minutes left to go, they're going to foul you and you're going to miss both free throws. <laughs> it's <laughs> and, so true. And it was true. that he, that he, he They did a foul and he missed both free throws or they'd throw it in and he, he couldn't catch the ball. He, he'd keep the ball low and they'd steal the ball from him in two seconds. He had the worst hands. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. You've got a Patrick Ewing helping him. Yeah, you, know, uh, you know, Hall of Famer, and he couldn't do anything with him. Unreal. I don't know.
0: Let him go. Let him go to Houston. So. I hear you guys bringing Bynum back though.
1: Do <laughs> you know, hey. said he would not? He would not uh, try out for any team. His agent said he will not work out for any team.
0: Wow. <laughs> All right, l- listen to that. Here comes Ernie's helicopter coming to get him. You hear that? Yeah, I hear it. Wait a minute. It's Kirby. <laughs> oh, Kirby's back from his date. <laughs> Alone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ernie. All
1: right. Take care, man. Thanks for everybody okay. listening. Thanks for your questions, man. Good race. Take care.
2: Bye-bye. All right, Ernie. Thanks.